All right, Lord willing, we're going to finish this uh, introductory lesson. We're still in the introduction, and I've managed to turn one lesson into three. I haven't tried to do that, so um, who knows? Maybe we'll be out a couple minutes early today. I'm not promising that, but we will try to at least finish this lesson. Um, let's see. Let's start. Which passage do you want to start in? Start in, if you would. Start in 1 Samuel 15, and uh, we'll get there in a minute. I'll explain why, why I'm there. 1 Samuel 15. Okay, so again, our, our lesson we're walking through here, and I promise what we're going through is very germane to the discussion. We have to have this foundation under it, and it's helpful to at least review it. What we're going through is effective or effectual, when you see that word, profitable, effective Bible study. And uh, we kind of began by asking the question, what constitutes effective Bible study? And now some of you, most of you heard me recommend a good Bible survey book such as one by John Phillips, or there's, there's other good ones out there. But again, to try to connect the dots, uh, I dare say, and I want to be careful saying this, because I don't know, obviously, nationwide, everybody and what's going on, but in my limited observation, a lot of the Lord's people have a somewhat disjointed view of the Scriptures, chunks here and pieces there, but as far as how they all connect and relate to each other is huge. I've used the illustration, when you're learning a new city, you're, you're, you're charged with learning Helena and knowing how to get around. You're not going to open up to your map and zoom in on this block and get to know every street. Uh, you may do that as part of what you're doing, but what you're going to learn is the major arteries, where everything connects to, so that when you're in a specific neighborhood, you know what that has to do with the rest of the city. You're going to know your way around, and uh, you will find your Bible understanding greatly, greatly enhanced with a panoramic view like that. What's the theme of the major books? What are the major ages or dispensations and the major stewardships? If anyone wants help with that, by the way, come talk to me. I will recommend resources. I think you will find it well worth your while and study. But again, what constitutes effective Bible study? It's not just I had my Bible reading time. That's good. That's a good, that's a good discipline. That's wonderful. But it's being able to take these words... You know, the discipline of doing it is one thing, but then it's being able to take these words to understand them correctly and to make a proper life application to where this is consistently changing me into his image. Nothing less than that is effective Bible study. Um, is there a benefit from just reading a little every day? Well, sure there is. It's better than nothing, and I don't want to discourage anybody. But... I mean, look what's going on, and you've heard me say this is the most deceptive age in the history of the church. I firmly believe that. Uh, there's so many warnings uh, biblically in the New Testament that have warned about what we're seeing today and how, how deceptive this age is. I mean, what's our sword? Uh, what, what's, our, what's our offensive weapon and, and what's our defensive weapon against? I mean, how do we know sound doctrine? We've got to be able to know how to apply the Scriptures. Again, it's not just proof texting. You and I have heard people, do you know, if let's say I'm going a life direction, it's based on one verse. You better know the context of that one verse and who it's written to and what the point of it is and what, what that verse actually means. It's very easy to scan the Scriptures looking for a statement that encourages me in a direction I already want to go. 
It's very easy to do that. And so, of course, we want to go through how do we establish context? What kind of study tools are important? How do I balance Scripture with Scripture? Things like that. And what we've been going through is a foundation on a revelation that from the very beginning, God placed man in the garden. He gave him work to do. He didn't just stick him there and leave him. Even in a sinless condition, he told Adam why he was there gave him something to do, revealed to Adam his need that he needed a wife, provided that need, then came to Adam and told him he'd provided that need and brought the provision to him, just like he does to us in salvation. You have a need. I've met the need. I'm bringing you the need. Now what are you going to do with it? And so if God didn't reveal himself to us, we would be in total darkness. If God did not take steps to make himself known And I pity some of our forefathers. It's hard to get a gauge on exactly how many of them to what degree, but a lot of them were deist, meaning they believed in some sort of deity, but that God had just wound stuff up and left it and sort of backed away. What a a depressing world to live in. (laughs) You know, isn't wouldn't it be? If God's just distant and could care less about me, just made me and threw me out there floating across the universe. No, no, no. Uh, God stepped down. Uh, God stepped down to reveal Himself to us. And we were talking about kinds of revelation. All right, review quick. What is natural revelation or general revelation? What kind of things? Nature. Nature, definitely. Romans 1.18 through 20. Uh, Psalm, 1, Psalm 19, uh, 1 through 6. What else? What else could be part of that? Nature, but what about something within man? Yeah. Now, Jiminy Cricket had his problems, but he's right that man had a conscience. What, I mean, what, how, do you, how do you define conscience? How in the world does every civilization in the world have some sort of moral code and some sense of wrongdoing when they fail? Where did that come from? So man's given, or God's given creation, and again, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. There's no speech nor language where their voice isn't heard. It's universal. All right, so speaking of sound doctrine, here comes a man to you, and he says, you know, I believe. It's just so sad that a lot of the world doesn't have the gospel in the Bible. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. So I think that if a man dies without Christ, he never heard the gospel, he never read the scriptures... Let's say all, let's say he was in Iran and that was, you know, he grew up and he died at age 20 in a terrible accident. All he ever knew was Islam. But he was sincere. I think that it just makes sense that God is so merciful, knowing that man had no light at all, that that man has to be in heaven because he was sincere in what he had. Am I right? How do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know I'm wrong? Romans 1, one, what does it say? They are without excuse. This is God's word, not man's. In other words, God's picture is man knows a whole lot more than he lets on. God says a whole lot of the world stays in ignorance. You ready for this? Because they want to. They want to. Now that doesn't kill evangelistic zeal. It shouldn't. But God's side of the ledger in Romans 1 is man is suppressing truth. He's forcing it downward constantly. God says this. 
And he sees the witness of creation. He sees the conscience within within him. It says God has showed himself to him. God has revealed that, that you're made in the image of God. Man intrinsically is aware of this. And yet he forces it down and forces it down. And God says that alone is enough to condemn. But natural revelation is not enough to save. And nobody's going to walk out, look up at the stars and go, you know, I think that God himself became man and lived a sinless life and he was slaughtered on a cross in fulfillment of prophecy, he took all the wrath of God on himself, and yet remained just. And now he freely offers me salvation for trusting Christ. No one's going to look up at the stars and come up with that. So man responds to general revelation satisfactorily. God knows the heart. God sends him more specific revelation, special revelation. And we're talking about kinds of special revelation. Again, Hebrews 1 God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, all sorts of different ways. And what we, we're, we're kind of right in the middle of the discussion on different ways God has revealed Himself. Uh, different ways He got this book into our hands. It's, uh, and by the way, we still don't know a lot about how some of these messages were communicated to the prophets. We don't know. We're not told. Um, we're told some of it. That we're not told how much of it they understood. Or were there times they were writing going, I know this is God speaking, but I'm not, I'm not sure what he's saying. I don't know. And so uh, we were talking about different ways God spoke. He spoke through the prophets. Uh, and again, a, a prophet is somebody speaking as God's mouthpiece. Uh, in that sense of foretelling, telling the future, that was a distinctly Old Testament ministry. There's a limited usage of that word in the New Testament. There were New Testament prophets in the first century, who helped complete the Scriptures. Uh, are there prophets today in the sense of, of forth-telling? In other words, telling forth what God's already spoken, yes. Uh, giving new revelation? No. If some conference comes and we've got additions to the Scriptures, you plug your ears and you run from that kook with all of your might, because I guarantee you, He has nothing for you. Okay, God has given His revelation. We'll get to that in a minute. But a prophet spoke as God's mouthpiece. And again, we were talking about some of the tests of a prophet. One of them was, again, a prophet spoke of distant future, but he had to prophesy about things that were near future because one of the tests of a prophet was, if he gives a sign or vision and doesn't come to pass, you just let him go, right? Like the major leagues. Hey, 300 bat and 300 ain't bad, right? Isn't that what you do? No, they stone them to death. I would think that would be a big deterrent when you stood up and said, thus saith the Lord. Okay, so how it was supposed to work is, Siner of wonder didn't come to pass, the guy was killed, but another test we went through Deuteronomy 13. Even if the Siner wonder did come to pass, and then this guy says, follow other gods, or turn away from the scriptures you do have, he was also to be executed. So the determining factor wasn't just a Siner wonder, it was more than that. This guy had to be in line with the Scriptures God had already given also. And uh, they had some Scriptures. They had at least the Law of Moses uh, when that was written. So, uh, again, uh, if somebody's going to claim to be a prophet today in that sense, they, they better stick with all the Scriptures. And, uh, of course, they do not. First uh, Samuel, though, why am I saying this? Let me, let me, let me just point something out. First Samuel 15. Samuel also said right at the beginning, verse 1, unto Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
I remember what Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way and when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass or donkey. Now, I'm tempted to get off track because that sounds awfully cruel. There's a lot more to say on that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to comment on that, but let me ask you a question. Is that, is that command in verse three, is it complicated? Now, a rebellious heart can make anything complicated. Here's what God says. Kill everything. Save nothing. Okay? What, do you need me to draw you a picture, Saul? Um, by the way, any of you see where that Florida sheriff <laughs> showed pictures at a news conference on what a peaceful demonstration, what a riot looks like? <laughs> now, in case any of you are confused... This is a peaceful demonstration. This is a riot. Any questions? Anyway, it, it's, it's amusing in the current climate. But Saul, what did he do? Of course, you know the story. They saved the bestie. The, well, I'm going to give it to the Lord. I've got a better idea than God. He spares the king. Okay, Samuel, if you drop down to verse 19 through 23, wherefore? Then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did obey. I meant it with all my heart, he says. And have gone, uh, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, king of the Am Am Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. I mean, again, this isn't complicated, but a rebel heart says, I did do right. How? I mean, you're looking at the outside going, Are you kidding me? He'd, Verse 22, Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. Ouch. Now notice something. Saul's being pretty, or Samuel's being pretty dogmatic. What did he tell, what did he tell Saul he disobeyed? The voice of the Lord. Now, which specific scripture passage was Samuel referring to when he told Saul to destroy Amalek? What was his chapter and verse? You're right, he didn't have one. Right? So how in the world could Samuel say, thus saith the Lord, and then tell him, you disobeyed the voice of God because you didn't listen to what I said? Because Samuel was a prophet, while the Scriptures were being written, that's why. You see the difference? Nobody's doing that today. Let, let's say, if I come to you and I say, Richard, thus saith the Lord. The, best, the next word out of my mouth, the better be a direct quotation out of here. Rightly used. It better be. See, I, I'm not a prophet. I don't... The, the scriptures are written. Okay, so Samuel, in other words, my point is though, they treated the word of the true prophet as the voice of God. And it was treated that way. That's why the ramifications were so serious when men said to speak for, or were saying they were speaking for God and did not. Okay, so prophet was one method. Uh, how about, in fact, turn to Exodus 7. And then we'll talk about this. Exodus 7.
Well, I'm telling you, it, it amaz- every time I read that account of Sam- Saul and Samuel, I just it's amazing. But it's a sober warning to all of us. It's a, it's a well-known quote, and it's a good one, that rebellion is not selective. Everybody know what I mean by that? A rebellious disposition against God-ordained authority is not selective. In other words, eventually that type of heart is going to rebel against any authority placed over them when it crosses them. I, I've watched this happen too many times. You can, predict, you can see it coming. Somebody has that sort of attitude, and let's say they're submissive to their boss at work for a while, until that crosses them. And all of a sudden, they're right, and everybody else is wrong. Saul was like that as king. I, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I didn't. You, you're misinterpreting me. You're judging me wrongfully. All right, so prophets was one, then miracles. God used miracles as a form of special revelation. Uh, when God created the universe, He designed its mechanisms. All right, now think about this. What is a miracle? How would you define it? What's a miracle? Depends who you ask, right? But what's a good what's a good working biblical definition? Understanding God has no limitations. Yes, and it's why does it seem impossible? You're right. You're on the right track. Humanly impossible. Humanly, because if, for instance, let's say I hold this book up, okay, I let go. What happens? Why does that happen? Who ordained that law? Okay? So, for God, does the book have to drop? No. God, God ordained the mechanisms, the laws which govern the universe, and, and there are many of them. So, a miracle isn't God doing something that's harder for Him. We have to banish that from our thought. Nothing. Do you understand saving a soul, creating a new universe, giving you lunch, blowing up a distant supernova? There's no such thing as more or less of God's power. It's infinite. There's no such thing as that. That's human language. But God designed the laws, and a miracle, we say something's a miracle when it goes against established physical laws that God has set up. That's that's what we would call a miracle, right? That doesn't usually happen because the universe doesn't operate that way, and so God sometimes transcends His own natural laws that He set up to get man's attention. And uh, of course, he did that many times in history. He can completely bypass those laws to convey a message. And it's interesting, the skeptics have the hardest time with that. Um, You take the sun going backwards 10 degrees. That's impossible! I agree, if you're trying to do it, it is impossible, but... To a God who spoke everything out of nothing. Now think about that. Is it anything to Him to make things go the other direction? Well, yeah, but the equator's traveling a thousand miles an hour. You stop the earth, everyone would go flying. Yeah, if you could do it. But you're not doing it, right? So... You think, what are some of the times in history, and there's a bunch of these, what, what are some prominent times where God completely bypassed natural law? What are some major ones? Joshua's long day. Joshua's long day, definitely. What else? 
Parting the sea, that's, that's a little unnatural, isn't it? What else? How about stopping the Jordan so you can walk across? What else? Uh, would you call resurrection from the dead, would you call that a little against natural law? I might. Uh, so is his ability to walk through walls after the resurrection. That, that's a little against nature too. Can't wait to have that feature myself. Right? So we recognize, and we could go on and on. I know this is a, that's an easy question. Um, and there's a lot of them. But look at Exodus 7, 5. Okay, what, what is God trying to say to the Egyptians through the miracles? God wasn't just, he was dual purposing or multi purposing as he always is. He wasn't just trying to build up his people, he was also trying to reach the Egyptians. The, uh, Exodus 7 5, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now, don't miss the import of that statement. Remember, Egyptians were polytheists, they had a whole stack of fake gods. And God is saying, which by the way, all these miracles, every one of them was specifically targeting a false Egyptian god. Every one of them was precisely going after one of their idols. He doesn't have power. He doesn't have power. And God's saying, I'm doing this to show you that I am the, okay, not one of, the, and Lord, notice the capital small block letters, that's I am or Jehovah. I am the covenant-keeping, self-existent God of all creation, and I'm the only one, the great I am. That's what's being said. And he's saying, I'm doing these miracles to convey that to the, to the Egyptians so they can never doubt it. And basically, God's telling Pharaoh, you can't explain what you're seeing by science or enchantments or anything else. In Revelation 6, you see it again, similarly. God's not totally done with miracles, by the way. Uh, there'll be a huge age of miracles coming up in the tribulation period again. They come in clusters. Again, biblically, miracles were not the norm. They came in sections, but the value, you take 6,000-year timeline of, of roughly 6,000 years of world biblical history, most of that was not an age of constant miracles. They came in little sections. That wasn't God's primary method of speaking. But it was evangelistic. And uh, they think of the plague of flies. They don't affect Goshen and the homeland. Imagine flies being so thick they make life unbearable. And you walk down the street, and where the Jews live, there aren't any. None. There's like this force field around them, and the flies just stop. I mean, was there like a wall of flies? There must have been around them. How do you explain that one? Man, that's tough. I should call Richard Dawkins. I think he can help me with that. I don't think so. Um, so in addition to evangelistic purpose, the Lord's miracles influenced His people, drawing them to a deeper knowledge of His love and care for them. During Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. All right, let me just raise that question. If they walked in obedience to God, what were some of the miracles for them in the wilderness? What kind of things you look at and go, that, that's, that's not how life works? Manna. Manna. How about every day, angels' food falls from heaven? Every day. In the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. And what's more, if you gather enough for two days, what happens? It rots and stinks. Except for except for just before the Sabbath. You can collect two days' worth, and all the sudden natural laws that were already supernatural but have become natural, 
Now those supernatural natural laws also don't apply on the Sabbath. But then I go out on the Sabbath and there isn't any manna. How do you explain that? Weather patterns and then the next day? Boy, you'd be surprised some of the liberal explanations for that. Some of them have actually explained there's some kind of tree that grows in that and they drop this kind of dusty pollen and the manna was a dusty pollen falling from a tree. That's a great explanation in the barren desert, isn't it? Well, that's a good one. That's more miraculous than what the Scriptures teach. So manna was one of them. What happened to their clothes? Wouldn't you love it? You parents, could you imagine shoes that didn't wear out? Knees that didn't wear out? For 40 years. What else? How about sickness and disease? As long as they walk with God, none of that. No enemies were going to overtake them. Uh, how about Caleb? How'd Caleb's health do during that 40 years from age 80 to age 120? Remember that? He gets in the land of promise. He says, I want that mountain. I'm just as strong now as I was 40 years ago. And 603,550 of his compatriots had croaked in the wilderness, many of whom had been younger than him. And yet here he is just as strong, right? So it was full of miracles. And uh, it tested and humbled Israel, the Lord says, Deuteronomy 8. And all this proved that God cared enough for His people to discipline them and draw them back to Himself. And uh, He absolutely did that. It's an astounding thing. Uh, we were just, in fact, Elijah and I were just reading last night about Moses' face shining when he comes down from fellowship with God. Can you imagine that? This guy's face glowing. People are terrified of him. But the same people that were terrified of him kept right on rebelling. I mean, they know this guy's been in the presence of God, <laughs> but they can't seem to get their heart figured out. All right, so prophets, miracles, another form of special revelation, and then uh, visions and dreams. On occasion, God used, notice I said that past tense, used. In other words, he did this for a while. God's visions and dreams, a special revelation. And uh, again, this is another area today. And let me just explain. I'm going to say more about this in a minute, but it's so, so critical. We have a grasp on bibliology, what the Scriptures are, what they claim to be, how sufficient they are, what the final authority in our life is. We better have that figured out. There, there, there are so many sources out there that will give lip service to the Scriptures, but when it comes down to it, they're not the final authority. Um, I think of a, a prominent Bible teacher in homeschool circles, and uh, his daughter comes out of the website, dreamingawake.com. Don't look it up. Hopefully it's defunct. And it's all about interpreting your dreams. There's page after page of... In fact, it got into intentionally learning how to have dreams so that you can, you can wake up and interpret them and write it down on your website. And it's creepy stuff. Very sad, actually. Very, 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 very off base. But God did use that as a form of special revelation while the Scriptures are being written. He supplied the interpretation for those revelations, and that is huge. When God gave vision and revelation, He also gives the interpretation to keep the uh, recipient from going off the rails. I mean, you go through the book of Daniel. That happens constantly. Um, you don't have to wonder. Passages like Daniel 2, 
or many of the prophecies in Daniel. God gives this vision and then gives the interpretation of it. This is what it is. Um, remember, Pharaoh has his dream. Just Joseph's in prison. Pharaoh has this dream. And uh, Joseph's attitude wasn't, hey, I got this, man, because I got dreams and revelations figured out. That is my specialty. I've been told I'm good at that. Come on, bring it on. He makes it known to Pharaoh, this is God's business. I'm his servant. He makes it known, I'll tell you, but give the glory to him. And uh, it was revealed in advance by dreams uh, to Pharaoh what was coming, but Pharaoh had no clue how to figure it out. It was given to Joseph to tell him. And of course, Joseph ends up rising to prominence, which I don't think was in his mind. I don't think he had ambitions of saying, I am applying for the job of prime minister. I think he had one singular purpose, which is honor God, give the message, and come what may, right? Because that, that had been his life already. Um, um, God gives Pharaoh uh, another dream that makes sense only when God allows Joseph to interpret. That's in Genesis 41. Now, much later, Ezekiel has a vision of the temple that God would allow Israel to rebuild in the millennial rule of Christ. That's uh, right at the end, Ezekiel 40 to 43. And you can go through, and in fact, again, people have made drawings of that temple, which is massive, way, way bigger than Solomon's, huge. And you can actually make detailed scale models of it based on the description given in those four chapters. And Ezekiel's transported way into the future by vision of what's coming for his people. Remember, Ezekiel's a captivity prophet. He's carried away to Babylon, and uh, he's given these visions for way in the future for his people. And, of course, God is telling us what the temple is going to look like. All right, now, let me ask this question. Uh, turn to 2 Peter 1.19. Very practical application. I hope this is a passage, 2 Peter 1.19, that all of us have on mental speed dial. I, I promise you this verse, this is not proof texting, this is taking this passage in context. This verse will save you from... Huge, huge confusion and heartache if you get what Peter is saying. It will spare you from tremendous spiritual damage today. Again, remember, this is Peter's final letter. He knows he's about to die, and he rehashes many things that he'd already taught. Look at one of them, 2 Peter 1.19. Okay, context backing up. Peter's talking about when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a man who physically walked with Christ three years, three and a half years, was with him at all these key moments, um, was there for the sermons, there for the upper room discourse. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw Christ transfigured, saw the Shekinah glory of God shining through so brilliantly. He fell on his face. Here's the audible voice of God speaking from heaven, and he actually heard it. He wasn't making this up. He heard this. But look at his conclusion, verse 19 we have also a more sure word of prophecy. What's he talking about? He's talking about the book you're holding in your hands. Peter's actually deflecting attention from experiences and visions and hearing voices and saying, we have something better. We have a more sure word of prophecy, wherein ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light shining in a dark place that shineth in a dark place until the day, day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. And he goes through how the Scriptures were given Holy men of God spake as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Ghost. So Peter is saying, listen, you want authority in your life. Here it is. 
Here it is. You want to know what to test things by? Here it is. So let me let me pose the question: Why doesn't Why doesn't God use visions and dreams to convey His message today, or does He use them? Somebody comes to you and they say, "I had a vision last night," and uh, yeah, take your pick, right? And, and they say, God told me to do this or that. Let's start with an easy one. It flatly contradicts the Scriptures. And you tell your friend, you're wrong. And what are, what are they going to say usually? Don't tell me my vision. I saw it. You didn't see it. You don't tell me what I saw. What authority do you have to tell them they're wrong? You legalistic, judgmental hypocrite. Help me out. Do, can I tell them they're wrong? Can I? Yes or no? Well, based on what? Based on a more sure word of prophecy. Now, here somebody throws it at you. They say, well, God can do whatever He wants. God isn't confined to a book. I'm just throwing you arguments that are out there on this. God isn't confined to a book. Is that true? God can speak however He wants today. He can do whatever He wants. If He wants to do miracles, He can do them. If He wants to give me dreams, if He wants to tell me to do something against this, He can do it, somebody says. What's the problem with that? It's not an issue of God lacking the power. It's an issue of God revealing Himself a certain way and saying, this is how I'm going to work, and Him being trustworthy, and you and I being content. Again, I'll point out, all throughout history, man has had a problem with God's the way God's revealed Himself. Remember Job cried out, oh, that, oh, that he'd write a book. <laughs> you, people that had visions and interpretations, they wanted something written down. It, it's always been man's fundamental flaw. So why doesn't God communicate through those things? I'll tell you why. Because His Word is complete. The canon of Scripture is done. Scripture is closed. Why do the temporary sign gifts? And they are temporary. I say that dogmatically. Like the gift of tongues, which isn't babble. It's a known language that you don't know that you get up and all of a sudden speak without learning it. That's biblical tongues. This is not complicated. To You have to try to get confused on that. You really do. Why? You do. I mean, read Acts 2 and tell me what a tongue is. I mean, right in the text, we hear them all speak in our own language. Is that complicated? They didn't say, what an amazing babble they're coming to. Blah, 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 boucher. You know, you... But it was a sign gift. It's closed. The gift of prophecy, foretelling, closed. Not needed anymore. Temporary gifts, they faded away. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says, tongues shall cease. It's in the middle voice, in and of themselves. He's saying tongues, the gift of tongues is a supernatural manifestation will vanish in and of themselves. That's why the later epistles are not mentioned. Go to Ephesians. What's the, what's the fruit of the Spirit there? Where's tongues? Hmm? Where, where is it? Show me. It's not there. Go to Revelation, find it. <laughs> you see tongues mentioned, but it's people speaking languages. So anyway, that those type of things passed away because they were needed to authenticate the message and to finish the writing of the Scriptures. Okay, so we need a more sure word of prophecy. Are you kidding me? It's already 1042. We're <clears throat> All right, so... Uh, and then you have what other types of special revelation? Embodiment. In other words, God giving something actually tangible for today... And that comes in two, I hate to say forms, but the Bible, God's special revelation, 
And Jesus Christ himself is said to be God's special revelation. In fact, you open up the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And... uh, a preacher friend of mine made the statement, I've not forgotten it because he's right. He said, if you, you, you take the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John and it will box you into Orthodox Christology, meaning you can't get goofed up on who Jesus is if you just listen to those 14 verses because it says so much about his eternality, his omniscience, his power, his deity, all of it's there. Sovereign power. So uh, John 1, um, of course, we're going to try, bear with me for five more minutes, okay? We're going to try to rush through this. No, we're not. I don't want to rush through that. Ah! All right, let's turn to John 1. We're going to have to stop there in a minute. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to walk the tightrope of getting through this. John 1. Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, we see that Jesus Christ declared God. He's in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared Him, or meaning He's exegeted Him. Jesus is a perfect representation of the Godhead bodily. Colossians puts it that way. In other words, seeing Him is seeing God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. He was truly... The eternal Jehovah, the everlasting I Am, manifested, robed in human flesh. It's an astounding thing. I think we can get through this. We'll just go quickly. Hebrews uh, 1 will not turn there, but it's... Uh, in fact, we're going to be there a little bit in the morning service. So we'll, we'll skip over it. We'll talk about it in a minute. But you see that Jesus Christ manifested the glory and person of God in Hebrews 1. Again, that cannot be said about anyone who's less than deity. It would be blasphemy to say that. And so Christ conveyed to His disciples. He's showing the Father by His life. Remember Philip? Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And what did Jesus say? He that hath seen Me hath seen the Father. Think about that. Jesus was not God becoming compassionate all of a sudden. That is who God is. The conversations He had. The compassion the rebuke, all of it is who God is in human form. And of course, by His sacrifice, He revealed that He's the way to God the Father. He purged our sins by His death on the cross. So a special revelation goes far beyond just stretching our minds with new information. It draws us to the knowledge of God. It gives us an opportunity to be rightly related to Him. And lastly, the Bible will we'll be, we'll be done in just a sec. Okay, the Bible is far more than just a record of God's special revelation. It is, it is itself special revelation. Uh, remember a verse from last week. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed it out. Holy men of God, Peter says, were carried along or moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Bible is miraculous in its essence and accurate in its entirety. The Bible, this right here, this book, Being in your hands is a miracle. 
how God brought it together. How do 66 books spanning 1,500 years in multiple world empires combine for one cohesive message that's been supernaturally preserved with unbelievable accuracy? And by the way, you, you ever compare, look it up sometime. The historical evidence for the accuracy of something like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey compared with this. It will blow your mind how much historical backing this has. How much archaeological evidence. It blows away any other piece of publication. It's unbelievable how God has done that. So it reveals God to us. It draws us to a vital relationship with Him. It leads us to Him. Psalm 19, 7-11. In fact, uh, it gives a description of the Bible there. In the end, remember Psalm 19 goes from natural revelation to special revelation. Verses 7 through 11 call it all these different titles for the Scriptures. One of them is the fear of God. That's what it's calling the Bible. So, uh, again, the succeeding lessons here, we're going to talk about the Bible's special revelation. Now, let me ask this question. Jesus Christ and the Bible are God's fullest special revelation. Is it possible to observe Christ apart from the Scriptures? Somebody says, I'm just following Jesus. Can you do that apart from the Bible? What if somebody tells you, you know, Jesus has been talking to me today. Here's what He said. Probably the most popular women's devotional today. Jesus Calling. Sarah Young. I guess I shouldn't be surprised in an age of apostasy but it is spine-tingling what the introduction of that book used to say before the publishers got rid of it to, get it, to reach a wider audience. This is, this, this is scary stuff, I'm telling you. This is major, major spiritual danger. And she'll say, oh, I'm not replacing the Bible. She says, I, I long for something more, something outside the Scriptures. And uh, the devotional is written in the first person as though Jesus is talking to her. Devotional book people read. What many don't know, it's based on a book called God Calling by a couple of heretical women who call themselves the two listeners. And uh, these two women went through a, a, a most remarkable thing. I've had the quote. I don't want to dig it up my phone again, but you can see it if you want. But from that book, she's saying the most remarkable thing happened to my friend. She began to receive direct special revelation from Jesus Himself. And these messages were so sweet and so wonderful. We were so humbled because... So many saints, so many millions of saints, more worthy than us, had to be content with just the Bible and sermons. And, but we had something more. What do you think? Well, wait a minute. Jesus is God's special revelation. Isn't she receiving more? What's the danger with that? See, it all comes back to this. Is this a more sure word of prophecy or not? If this book is God-breathed, Supernaturally preserved. It is profitable. It is sufficient. Do you need anything else? Uh, no, in other words, God is not giving new revelation today. Not in that sense. Uh, God is not adding to the Scriptures. And listen, forget the gymnastics some of these people do trying to defend what they're doing. If it even comes close to sounding like it's adding to the Scriptures, run from it. Run from it. There's many books like that. All right, I'll close with this question, though. Why? Think about us. 
Why are we tempted sometimes to take this for granted? How come? Does familiarity ever breed contempt? <laughs> it can. Any of you ever read the story of Mary Jones and her Bible? Uh, some of you, in fact, you can get an audiobook. Your kids might like it. It's a boy, you talk about a story that just makes you think. Uh, this poor little dear girl that saved up for something like nine years and walked, I don't remember how many dozens of miles. And she wanted to keep her nicest shoes nice, so she went barefoot and carried her shoes to go buy her own copy of the scriptures. It's astounding. And uh, now you and I go to use bookstore, 10 cents. I say in this age, we better deliberately discipline our minds to treat this book as precious as it is. <laughs> Parents, I encourage you, don't let this go on the floor in your house. My kids will tell you, I see a Bible set on the floor, I'm on it. You pick that up. This is not a doorstop. This is not a piece of shelf decoration. This is the Word of God. While this copy will wear out, oh, the words in here are precious. And so uh, the next lessons we're going to go through, uh, we'll be building on that, how to have effective Bible study in this God-breathed book. Any questions or comments? We're a little late before we stop. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank You. And Lord, we, we sympathize in one sense. We don't want our, our walk with You to be stale. It's easy to let it descend into a, just a, a, a rigid dead duty. So in that sense, we ask, Lord, for help at cultivating and maintaining vibrancy with You. Lord, if we are all honest, there are times we are bored with Your Word, and we say that with shame. But yet we ask You to preserve us from trying to fill that void with something inferior or downright deceptive. As we know that the deceptions are many. Oh, help us to be a people that value Your Word and are grounded in Your Word. And treat it seriously. And I pray, Lord, that we'd find it fulfilled as we cultivate a love for Your book. We do see Christ in it. It becomes sweeter than honey to our mouth. It becomes a delight and a precious treasure and a lamp shining in darkness. Help us to be discerning, Lord, because we're people of the book. In Jesus' name, amen.